Now, I want to start by asking, how do you view Wellington? How do you view Wellington? Uh, when you look at our city, uh, what do you see? Well, I can tell you that when Deutsche Bank looks at Wellington, they see a very livable city. Uh, you, you, if you've lived here for any amount of time, you'll know uh, that for two years running in 2017, 2018, Wellington was ranked at the top of an index of the most livable cities in the world. Uh, for those of you who've just moved to town, that is good news. You've moved to a great place. Uh, it ranked second on the, out of all the cities that were totaled um, because of uh, travel times. So we don't have to travel very far to get to work and to get to the things that we play. Uh, second also in terms of pollution levels. It's not a very polluted city. It even ranked us sixth out of 56 for climate. Um, I think they were just looking at average temperatures, uh, not wind speeds. Here's how one of the authors of the report sees Wellington. Wellington is a city that is easy to live in. It's compact, connected, and innovative, with a lifestyle that's making the world sit up and take notice. But the best thing about Wellington, hear the warm fuzzies, the best thing about Wellington is the Wellingtonians, who can be rightfully proud of their city. You feel all warm and gooey inside. Is that how you view Wellington, the place that we live? Or maybe you have a slightly more sceptical view. Maybe you read the newspaper and you look at the census and you survey the churches in our city and you see something quite different. Maybe you read the paper and you get told that Wellington is the godless capital of New Zealand. You look at our city and you see a city which has the lowest number of people who identify as Christians and the highest number of people who identify that they have no religion whatsoever. Before we moved to Wellington, someone told us uh, that when God was dividing up New Zealand, uh, He gave uh, Auckland to the Baptists, He gave Christchurch to the Anglicans, uh, the Presbyterians got Dunedin and the devil got Wellington. Is that how you view Wellington? A city that has turned its back on God, a place where it is hard to be a Christian, where the policies and the procedures and the peer pressure at work is for Christians to put up and shut up to sign off on those corporate values that are contrary to Scripture and contrary to the Gospel? Do you see Wellington as a place that has turned its back on God? Uh, to be honest with you, I fluctuate between the two things. Um, I fluctuate between uh, feeling blessed and lucky to live in such a beautiful and safe and fun city with cool people doing creative and interesting things and such spectacular food and coffee and beer and all the things I love. And then I feel despair, despairing that so few of our neighbours and our friends know Jesus, and even less of them have any care whatsoever about God and His Word and the Gospel. But if you were to take a walk with Jesus this afternoon, if you were to take a walk with Jesus up Mount Victoria and you were to stand up there with all the tourists and look down at our city and ask Jesus, what do you see? How would He view our city? What would Jesus' response to Wellington be? What would Jesus do when He got here? Would He go and visit the churches and visit all of, and kind of hang out with all the religious people? Would He kind of go into, the, into Courtney Place and, and hit the bars and hang out with sinners? Or would He go kind of walking up to Thorndon to the IRD offices and hang out with the tax collectors? Or would He kind of get in a boat and go out on the harbour and, and tell the wind to be still? Wouldn't that be nice? 
Would he go about the cafes and the bars and the, and, and, and the pubs and, and turn over the tables, calling out our idolatry of the worship of food and coffee and beer? Or would Jesus' heart break? Would he weep that there are so few here who know him, so few here who have come and put their trust in him, so many here who are lost without him? Now, this week we begin our sermon series in Matthew's Gospel. It's a series we started back at the beginning of 2017, and we're kind of taking chunks of Matthew's Gospel at a time. Every term, every first term of the year, we hit Matthew's Gospel again. And so now we're up to kind of chapters 10 to 13. And in the passage we're looking at today, it's a bit of a transition section from Jesus' powerful actions from, verses, uh, from chapters 8 and 9, uh, His powerful actions that show Him as the one who has come to bring God's kingdom. And now we're moving into a section of teaching where Jesus will show us how the world is going to respond to the coming of that kingdom. And in this little transition passage, we get a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. We get a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. What's motivated Him to act the way that He has with these powerful actions of healings and, and uh, exorcisms and uh, his, his care for people, we get a glimpse into His heart, and it's a heart that is filled with compassion. It's a heart that is filled with compassion for a world that does not know Him. See, as we see Jesus' uh, perspective here, a heart filled with compassion will also see God's solution, God's solution to a world that does not know Him, and we'll also see our part to play. Now, this is, a, uh, this is not intentional, but this is a great place for us to begin as we begin our year together, as we consider our church, and as we consider our vision and our mission, and how we can be part of what God is doing in this place, to start with a view of what God thinks, what God feels about His world. So if Jesus was here to come and and, and take him up to Mount Victoria and to look across Wellington, what would Jesus see? What would he feel? Well, that's where this passage begins. It's not just, uh, it's not Jesus' vision for Wellington, but as Jesus travels through Galilee, when he sees people, we're given a glimpse into what he's feeling. And take a look there at Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. It'd be great if you can have uh, that passage open as as we go through. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So what does Jesus feel as he sees the crowds, as he surveys Galilee? When he sees the crowds, it says he is moved, he has compassion on them. Now, Jesus just, he's not just kind of feeling all the feels, Jesus has actually been busy here. Matthew summarizes what Jesus has been doing up this point in this little section. He says, in all the towns and villages, healing every disease and sickness. It's funny to think that there was a time where, you know, in Galilee, the hospitals were empty. Jesus had healed all the diseases and sickness. He has been moved by compassion, and His compassion moves Him to act. He has been busy. You see, Jesus shows no sign of compassion fatigue. Uh, A few weeks ago, I was walking down Lambton Quay uh, when my personal space bubble was invaded by a smiley backpacker waving a clipboard. He had all the signs of one of those charity muggers, the chuggers as we call them, 
kind of the bright shirt, the, the kind of good eye contact, the outstretched hand, the cheesy pickup line. Now, I don't know what the appeal was for, whether it was poverty or rainforests or bushfires or the Winston Peters Retirement Fund, uh, but, I, but I did what every honourable Kiwi would do. I pretended like I hadn't seen him and I hadn't heard him and I just kept on walking. Now, that's not what Jesus does here. As he sees the need in front of him, he doesn't turn the volume up on his headphones, he doesn't put his sunglasses on, he doesn't look the other way and keep on walking past the crippled, past the blind, past the sick, past the demon-possessed, past the lost. He doesn't pretend that he doesn't see them. No, Jesus stopped and he taught them and he healed them and he rescued them and he restored them. And Matthew says he did that for all of them. And he did it because he had compassion on them. Because he had compassion on them. And why did he have compassion on them in particular? Was he kind of particularly moved by their pain or by their grief or by their story? Or was he just a a particularly emotional guy? Kind of going to cry at the drop of a hat kind of guy? Well, actually, Jesus tells us what moved. Matthew tells us what moved Jesus, what stirred Jesus. As Jesus looks at the crowds with compassion... He has compassion because they have, great need, they have a great need for a saviour. Now have a look there at verse 36. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. As Jesus travelled around Galilee, the crowds flocked to him. They flocked him, they mobbed him because he was one who had real authority. He was actually able to do something about the sickness and the death and disease that was plaguing them. And they flocked to him because they actually had nowhere else to go. They were understrained, they were bullied, they were persecuted, they were tormented. And the tragedy of their situation was, it was their leaders who had let them down. Their leaders had failed them. As Jesus says, they were like sheep without a shepherd. But even worse than abandoned, their leaders were actually the ones who were harassing them. Those who were charged with protecting God's people, they were the ones who were behaving like wolves instead of shepherds, harassing and harming the flock. And as Jesus looks at the crowds, he sees a flock that has been ravaged by its leaders. They have been led astray by those who should have been leading them back to God. They're harassed, but also they are helpless. He sees people who are completely unable to do anything about their situation, unable to help themselves. I remember the news story uh, that was in 1997, a British sailor was competing in a round-the-world solo yacht race. Uh, In horrendous conditions in the Southern Ocean, uh, his boat capsized uh, and leaving him trapped underneath inside the hull. Uh, To give you some uh, context of where he was in the world, the closest landmass to where he was was Antarctica, with no radio and no food and no water and a rapid diminishing supply of oxygen in his upturned hull, this sailor waited, helpless, completely unable to do anything about his situation. Help had to come from the outside. And it did. Uh, Five days later, the Navy turned up and they knocked on the hull and much to their surprise, he popped out from under the water and was rescued. These crowds before Jesus, they were helpless. They needed help to come in from the outside and Jesus saw their great need, their great need for a saviour, their need for someone to to reach out to them and rescue them and he saw their need and he had compassion on them. Now we can look around at Wellington and we can 
Um, some of us, as we look around at Wellington, we can be tempted to get our grumpy pants on and shake our fists at the city and kind of get all worked up with righteous indignation. You know, New Zealand was a nation founded on Christian principles. What's gone to happen to this place? People have turned their backs on God. Look at all the evil and the wickedness and depravity that's going on. And yes, people will be held personally to account for turning their backs on God, for sinning against the holy God. But as Jesus sees the crowds, he is first moved with compassion. Yes, he does call them to repent. Yes, he does call them to a high bar of morality and discipleship and devotion to God. But he also looks on them with compassion. They are lost and they need saving. Now, that word compassion, it's not just kind of sympathy or pity or concern. The original is something like this. It's something like kind of your bowels yearn. It's like, a, like located in your guts, this feeling. Jesus sees these crowds and he has this deep, stomach-twisting, gut-wrenching compassion for them. And when Jesus sees our city, when he sees our friends and our family who don't know them, he has this deep, stomach-twisting, gut-wrenching compassion for them. He doesn't just feel a little bit sorry for them, but he is moved deeply for them. But is that how you feel? When you're reminded that 53% of people in our city say they have no religion, compared to 31% who say that they're Christians, what, what, does, what does that do to you? What does that sort of statistic do to you? Do you treat that statistic the same way that you treat the charity collector in Lambton Key, kind of turn the headphones up, drop the sunglasses, don't make eye contact and keep on walking? Or when you hear that, do you feel a gut-wrenching compassion? Are you disturbed? Are you troubled? Are you grieved that so many in our city, so many people that we know and love, don't know the love that God has for them in Jesus? Do we feel Jesus' gut-wrenching compassion for lost people? Because it's actually from this place, it's from this place, this realisation that Wellington uh, needs a great Saviour, it's from this place that we planted this church, not because we thought we were the Saviour, because we thought Jesus was the Saviour that this place needed. And it's six years later, that, that's true, City on a Hill's primary reason for existing it's to see lost people saved by Jesus. That's why the vision for our church is to multiply followers of Jesus, more and more people rescued from heaven, uh, rescued to heaven from hell. See, Jesus has compassion on people because they are harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. But as Jesus looks out across Galilee, he also sees something else. He sees there is a great need for more workers. Uh, take a look at verse 37. He says this, uh, verse 37, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. It's not a, it's not a lack of opportunity that Jesus is saying that we have. Uh, it's not a lack of um, people kind of who are, who are in need or who kind of could be saved. Uh, Jesus says there's a lack of leaders, a lack of those who could go out and rescue those who are harassed and helpless. 
And here Jesus kind of changes the metaphor from shepherding to crop farming. And Jesus, he sees the need. The harvest is plentiful. It is abundant. There are plenty of people to gather into the kingdom. But Jesus says there are not many to share the load. Now, I'm no farmer, but our little, uh, from, even from our little garden, I know that when something is ripe, uh, you've got to pick it right away. Uh, if it's left there, it spoils or it blows away or it gets eaten by hungry children. Um, I have a friend who worked on a large property in New South Wales, uh, a massive property, and he said that when it was time to harvest the grain, anyone who was old enough to sit behind the wheel of a tractor was out in the field, 18 hours a day, no days off, weeks at a time, because when the harvest needs to be brought in, it needs to be brought in now. And as Jesus surveys the harvest field of the people of God, he sees harassed and helpless people waiting to be rescued needing to be gathered in, and it's a labour problem, he sees. The workers are few, there are not enough people to bring in the harvest. Now, if you're in that situation, what do you do? You hire more people, you bring in some friends, you put in, put in some longer hours, you get the kid to drive the tractor, which is why I find Jesus' answer here surprising. Verse 38, I mean, if you know me, you know that I'm a bit of an activist, Actually, that's not quite right. I'm a massive activist. Like, just, just, let's just get, get it done. My instinct is to get on with it, to pull up my sleeves, to get to work, to get others involved. But Jesus doesn't do that. For some of us, it feels like Jesus does the very opposite. Jesus tells his disciples first to pray. Verse 38. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest fields. I was wondering this week, why does Jesus do this? Why? Why, why, doesn't, why not get straight to work? Why, why not just get more people involved, get on with it? Is praying just kind of wasting time to kind of just, just get on with it, Jesus? I think Jesus here is reminding us of whose harvest it is, whose field it is. It's not the Andrew Sutherton harvest or the city on a hill or any other church's harvest. It belongs to God. It is God's harvest field. The, the, the harvest, it is His work. God is the creator of our wonderful city. He is the Lord of all those who inhabit it. And ultimately, God is the one who will rescue them and who will bring back the lost. It is God's work, and so we pray. We've got a hint uh, back to this in verse 36. It's ultimately God who's the one who rescues. And Matthew hints at this with this phrase, like sheep without a shepherd. It's a carefully chosen phrase, like sheep without a shepherd. And it ought to cast our mind back to God's promises to His people in the Old Testament. In particular, the prophet Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel announces God's judgment on the selfish shepherd of Israel. Uh, Ezekiel 34 verse 10 says this, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I'm against the shepherds and I'll hold them to account, I will hold them accountable for my flock. I'll remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and no, they will no longer be food for them. And God promises that after removing the, the, the kind of bad shepherds of His people, uh, He Himself will come and He will come and be their shepherd. Uh, it says this in Ezekiel 34, verse 11. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. 
but the sleek and the strong I'll destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. So why does Jesus tell us to pray before we get to work? Well, it's because God is ultimately the shepherd. The flock, the sheep are His flock. The harvest belongs to Him. It is His harvest field, so we need to call out to the Lord of the harvest to do His work, to send out workers into His harvest field, that God Himself might bring in His harvest. At this point, I don't know about you, but I, I need to, at this point, repent of my lack of prayer. I think we need to confess to each other as a church that we have struggled to do this well. We have struggled to prioritize prayer as a church. Do you know that at our church, when we combine our community groups together uh, to do something, about once a term we do that, we combine them together. Sometimes it's a teaching thing, sometimes it's a, a social thing. Uh, the one that is least well attended is when we gather to pray. It's, it's, it's every time. You can set your watch to it. It's It's, it's amazing. When we say there's a prayer night, less of us will turn up than if it's a pizza night or, you know, a teaching night on something. And when we go to community group, we aim to do three things in our community groups. We aim to read the Bible together, share in community, and to pray. And which of the three most often gets left off? Or we run out of time? Or we do it in an ad hoc kind of way? Well, certainly not the teas and the, the supper we have before, and it's, it's, you know, the Bible study leader has prepared their studies, so they're going to make sure we do that. The thing that gets left, left, off, left off most often is prayer. And when I sit down to prepare my kids' church talk or my Bible study or um, when I sit down and plan a meeting or a program or a sermon series or a new congregation or look for a new venue, how infrequently is the first thing that I do is to pray? pray. So tonight, at 6 p.m., at 176 Tory Street, will you join us to pray? To pray to the Lord of the harvest, to pray to the shepherd of the flock, to pray that He will raise up more workers, that He will bring in His harvest. Uh, each of us got on the way in uh, these little five-for-five five cards. Um, we talk about them every now and then. But the first step in the whole process, there's five steps on, uh, on, on sharing the good news of Jesus with our friends. The very first step in the whole process is to pray. Committing to pray for five people. Praying, Father, give me an opportunity to, and the boldness to take the next step with these people to bring them to repentance and faith. With whatever we do, whatever we commit to later on today, as we might commit to ministry teams or sign up to a community group or pledge to giving to church or whatever you might do for the rest of the day, don't do it before you pray. Ask the Lord of the harvest. Pray that He will search for the lost and bring back the strays, bind up the, wind, bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, that He will shepherd His flock with justice. But Jesus, he doesn't stop with prayer. Uh, it's as though Jesus here has been listening to the Manager Tools podcast and kind of he immediately begins to delegate uh, like any good manager would. Uh, we see this in chapter 10. Uh, we're going to spend a lot less time on this. Um, we'll pick up some of it next week. Uh, but Jesus says this, uh, this uh, Matthew says this in uh, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Have a look there in verse 1. Jesus called the disciples to himself and he gave them authority 
to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. See, what Jesus does is he delegates his authority. Uh, Here it seems that the, the 12 chosen are given authority to do everything that Jesus has been doing up until this point. And in verse 2, we see that these 12, they're called apostles. Now, the word apostle just simply means sent one. Uh, So these guys are being sent out with Jesus' authority. Uh, But is that all kind of Jesus is doing here? Is Jesus just kind of an accomplished middle manager who's delegating tasks to his subordinates? Is Jesus just kind of simply sending out helpers? Uh, Jesus kind of realized that he's not man enough to do the job, so he's kind of got the, um, the temps in to kind of get the job done. Now, Jesus is actually making a statement here. He's making a statement about who he is and what he has come to do. You see, calling 12 apostles and sending them out to, verse 6, sending them out to the lost sheep of Israel, Jesus is making a loud and clear statement. He is saying that he is the one sent by God to gather up God's people. Jesus is saying that he is the one promised in Ezekiel 34. He is the one who's going to remake the people of God, beginning with a new 12. And it's not the 12 gathered in tribes this time, but it's now going to be the 12 apostles, the 12 sent ones this time, who will take the news of Jesus and His kingdom with His authority to the ends of the earth. And we notice that this is what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 10. Uh, And when we realize that, that that's what Jesus is doing, we spare ourselves a, a lot of grief as we try and work out how we might fit in. See, I think the calling of the 12 here is a one off event. I think it's a one-off event because there are 12 and they're specifically named. They're Peter, Andrew, James, John, etc. This tells us it was a select and a closed and a limited group and that these disciples were distinct from other disciples. These disciples were given authority that wasn't given to other disciples. Not all who followed Jesus that day were given the authority that Jesus had. And these 12 sent ones, they form the foundation of a new people of God. Like the 12 tribes of Israel, these 12 would be the beginning of a new people of God. And the task they are given is, verse 6, to go to the lost sheep of Israel. And verse 7, as you go, preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, and cleanse those who have leprosy, and drive out demons. You see, God is going about to choose a new people out of the old a new people that He will never abandon, a new people that He will never forsake, a people that Jesus will ultimately purchase for God through shedding His own blood. And it begins with Jesus, and now He's commissioned these 12 apostles, and they carry out His work. They multiply His ministry throughout the region of of Galilee and eventually to the whole world. But do you see the flow here? Out of His great compassion... Jesus is not leaving. He is not abandoning His people. He will no longer let them be harassed and helpless. Now, out of His compassion, He steps in and says, enough is enough. I'm calling you home. I'm remaking my chosen people. I've come to heal them and to cleanse them from their sins, to rescue them and to make them whole. The strays are being brought back into the fold. The lost are being sought out and welcomed into the people of God. The harassed and the helpless are being liberated and gathered together as Jesus comes as the great Saviour, the shepherd of God's flock. And so when Jesus looks out, He has deep, gut-wrenching compassion. Do you share the compassion of Jesus? Or are you suffering from some sort of compassion apathy, 
you hear the need and it cognitively makes sense, but you feel... You feel nothing. Well, to regain our compassion, I think we need to see three things. First, we need to see the need. We actually need to get our heads around the reality, to see the reality, see the need that someone really is lost without faith in Jesus. That there is no other name under heaven on earth that people can be saved. We need to see the need. That people are lost and they are facing the righteous judgment of God and the outcome is not good if they are not rescued by Jesus. We need to know and we need to see that they have no greater need than to know Jesus. They have no greater need in their life, more than food and drink and air. Their greatest need is to know Jesus. Do you see the need? The second thing is we need to see the Saviour. We need to see that Jesus is the ultimate solution to their problem. Jesus is the Saviour who lived the life that they could not live. He died the death that they did not he died the death that they deserved and he did this so that they might be saved, so they might be brought back to God, so they might be brought into the people of God, so they might be brought into relationship with God. And we need to see that Jesus has actually done it. He is the shepherd. He is the answer and nothing else and no one else will meet our greatest need but only Jesus. And the last thing we need to see is the job or the role that we have to play or the role that we have to pray. Although the twelve had a very specific task to gather the lost sheep of Israel, God has commissioned us to go and make disciples of all nations. We have the job of seeking and saving the lost in this age. God has placed you, you, where you are, in the relationships you're in, in the job that you've got, with the resources you have, the time, the money, the energy. He has placed you there to make it happen. And He hasn't left you alone, He's given you His Word and He's empowered you by His Spirit to work in you and through you. And so we need to see that God has given us the job to share with others what He has done for us. And He wants you to share with others what He's done for you. But first, He wants you to pray. He wants you to pray to the Lord of the harvest that He will raise up workers, that He will shepherd His flock, that He will bring in His harvest as people come to know Jesus. So will you pray with me as we uh, bring this before our great God? Heavenly Father, we, we, we long to have Your eyes for our city, And we long to have your heart for the lost. Lord, help us to see that people who don't know you are lost, harassed and helpless. Help us to see that people's greatest need is you. To come to faith in you. To be forgiven by you. To be brought into relationship with God through you. And Lord, help us to commit to pray. To pray that you will do your work in and through us.
that you will work in our city, that you will use us to grow your kingdom. And we pray these things in the great name of Jesus, the good shepherd who has come to save the flock, the one who is mighty to save. Amen.